Today we are back in Luke chapter 1, looking at verses 67 through 80, continuing in our series that we've been looking at through the month of December. We're looking at announcements, visits, and showers. We're expecting a baby. And so I'm excited about today, we're looking at Zacharias's shower of prophecy. Zacharias's shower of prophecy. We all have hopes and dreams for our children, don't we? Some of you, your children are grown. Some of them, you're, you're looking at the hopes and dreams of grandchildren, maybe even some great-grandchildren. But we have these hopes and dreams for them. We want them to excel in life. We want them to do great things. We want to be strong believers in Jesus Christ and to walk in their faith. We want them to be productive members in society. We want them to be confident in who Christ has changed them to be. But these are all wants. They're all wants. And we have really... I mean, we've got some control over it, but ultimately they're going to have to make a decision at some point in their life. But these are all wants. Today we look at Zacharias' shower of prophecy, and we will hear not of, what, of a want of Zacharias, but we will hear prophecy of who John is according to the Lord and what he is to do. And according to the Lord is truth, and according to the Lord is complete. Last week we began, our, uh, our text was Mary's Magnificat, Mary's song. We looked at that. But this week we will begin with Benedictus. And this comes from the first word in the Latin version and is derived from the Greek word ulogetos, meaning blessed. And it's Benedictus. And so that's where we get these words, Magnificat, because the first line of Mary's song says, My soul magnifies the Lord. And then in Zechariah's prophecy, his shower of prophecy, the first word is, blessed is the Lord God of Israel. You know, this is an ecstatic expression of gratitude for God, for his boundless goodness, which is something we should all experience and, and proclaim, especially at this time of year. And we also begin at an important point in the history of Zechariah, in the story, excuse me, of Zechariah and Elizabeth. They are bickering. They, we find them in the home, uh, not Zacharias and Elizabeth, but family members have come in to Elizabeth's home. Zacharias, you know, he's been dumbstricken since uh, he doubted uh, the Lord uh, through the, the prophecy and through the statement that Gabriel gave. He's been dumbstricken. He's not been able to speak. And so he's not able to speak. The family comes in and they're like, man, uh, Elizabeth, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't need to name him John. John, who's named John in your family? And you know, you probably have family members that wanted to come in and name your kids for you. And you're like, no thanks. So Elizabeth is doing the same thing. He said, you know what? Our son's already been given a name. His name is John. And so they're arguing back and forth. And uh, Zechariah motions. And he's like, he's like, give me the tablet. So like he takes out the first iPad. And he begins to write on there. And he says on that tablet, he says, his name shall be called John. And his lips are loosened. His dumbness is removed because he has exercised obedience and faith to the word of God that God said, you're going to have a son. He is going to be named John, and he's going to be a forerunner to the Messiah, the one that is to come. And his mouth and he is, his, his dumbness is removed, and he's able to speak. And so this long silence has allowed him to reflect on what God has called for him to do, and he is now prepared to do it. And Zacharias has learned that even righteous men have something to learn from God. 
we always have something to learn from God. Remember, Zacharias was a prophet. I mean, he was a, excuse me, a priest. And he went into the temple, and, and he was chosen to go in there. It was not by happenstance, it was by God's will that he was the one that got to go in that day. And we have this account of Zacharias. And now thinking back to Mary's hymn, it showered praise in personal and general terms. Now this hymn of Zacharias of praise anticipates and oversees the careers of the two children whom divine destiny has brought together. Like Mary's hymn, this Thanksgiving psalm is filled with Old Testament imagery. Last week I quoted so much from David's writings in psalm. This Thanksgiving hymn is filled with Old Testament imagery and declares how the strong one from the house of David will be a light of rescue and guidance for his people. That's what Bach wrote in his commentary. Not Bach, the, the, the uh, composer, but this is Daryl Bach who writes in the NIV application commentary. Today we're going to look at God's dependability. And John's responsibility. So let's look here in Luke chapter 1, beginning there in verse 67. And we're going to read down through verse 80. If you have your copy of God's Word, you can pull that out. Or you can look on the screens. There'll be, the scripture will be there also. Luke records there in verse 67. Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, you will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give us light, to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts to the day of his manifestation to Israel. So as we look at this scripture today, we begin there in verse 67. And as I recounted to you what was happening in between the Magnificat here and the Benedictus, as we look between the two, we see the birth of John the Baptist. John the Baptist has been born. And then we have the circumcision of John the Baptist. And all that happened on the eighth day. They're all in there. And that's how when circumcision was to be performed for children that were Jewish. And, and that was to take place. And as I said, the family has come in. And they're trying to tell Elizabeth what to name him. And Elizabeth's like, no, I don't think so. That's not how it's going to go. And, but they said to her, there is no one among your relatives there in verse 6 who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father that he would have called him, what he would have called him. So they're wondering if he was deaf too. They're, they're saying maybe he was deaf and could not speak. He was deaf and dumb because they were making signs. So some type, maybe there was some type of sign language they were communicating. 
And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying, His name is John. So they all marveled. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke praising God. His tongue was loosed and he began praising God. And so what happened after that? Fear came on everybody. Because they were wondering, when was he ever going to speak again? And when he proclaimed the truth of what God had told him about his son, then they knew, what is up with this child? Look at what they said there, verse 66. And all those who heard them uh, kept them in their hearts saying, what kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And what, what, in the, what kind of child is this going to be? And now, look at verse 67 as we begin today into our, our focus of our text today. Now, his father, Zacharias, what, what happened here? Was filled with the Holy Spirit and began prophesying. And he said, No one that has not been redeemed or saved is filled with the Holy Spirit. And the only way one could prophesy is through the filling of the Holy Spirit. We see that about Elizabeth. Elizabeth begins prophesying about the baby that is in the womb of Mary when we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. It says she was filled with the Holy Spirit and then she began to prophesy about what he was going to be. She was filled with the Holy Spirit. And see, here we find Zacharias filled with the Holy Spirit. What an amazing family if you think about this. What a righteous family Elizabeth, Zacharias, and John the Baptist. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. Elizabeth gets filled with the Holy Spirit when Mary comes to visit because the Messiah is in the presence. And then Zacharias is filled with the Holy Spirit. Wow, what an amazing family. I think they get overlooked in the shadow of Jesus. But, but faithfulness to what God calls us to you too are filled with the Holy Spirit when you surrender in obedience to Jesus Christ. And when you do what God's called you to do, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. There will be a change in your life. There will be a change in your family's life when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. There should be a difference in who you are when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. So we see Zacharias. This is, a lot of times we just blip over these things like like when we looked at elizabeth many of you as as well myself have never had anybody really focus on the fact that elizabeth was filled with the holy spirit before she began speaking and now a lot of times we just oh this is right underneath the little semi-title in my bible that says zacharias's prophecy but the big deal is what's indented right a lot of times we just bypass the other things we need to be reading the Bible in context, in its fullness. There are so many things that we skip over and we miss because we just want to jump to the good parts. It's all a good part. It's God's Word. Don't skip stuff, even, even names in the Old Testament. Why does Matthew start off with lineages? It's important. That's good stuff, too. It's good stuff, too. So anyway, we don't need to skip over that. It's a powerful point. And then Zacharias, in verses, uh, as we look at verses 68 and 69, we see God's dependability here. We're dependable. He is dependable in his covenants. He says, blessed is the Lord God of Israel. As we begin to look into, the, into God's dependability through his covenants, we read a familiar line 
written like Elizabeth, as we just talked about. And, and then we see Luke introduces this hymn as a response to the Spirit's filling of Zacharias. As is often the case in Luke, the Spirit leads to bold testimony and praise. As Zacharias prophesies over his son, it is a focus on the covenants of God to his people through their leaders from the Old Testament. So as you look at this, there is, a, a, there is the Davidic covenant. God made a covenant with David in the Old Testament. And so Zacharias goes back to David. And you can see that at the latter part of verse 69. And, and I'm going to kind of build to that point from that point there in 69, the Davidic covenant. God is faithful. We see his faithfulness to his nation there in verse 68. Zacharias recognizes that his deliverance and prophetic work comes through the Lord God of Israel. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. Israelites were and are a monotheistic faith system, meaning they believe in one God who is over all things. So Zacharias blesses his God, which is the Lord God who is mighty and able to deliver. He said, blessed is the Lord God of Israel. God was not even, he was not distant from his people either. For he has visited and redeemed his people. He's not a distant God. He is close by. He, and we see that when we talk about this, this visiting. When we consider the language of visiting and redeeming, we come to the conclusion of someone who has a deep concern and relationship with those whom they are speaking. You know, you go and visit people that you usually have a really good relationship with. During Christmas and Thanksgiving, during this season, it's very much about people that you have good relationships with, that you're visiting with. Sometimes you go visit with your mother and father if they're still here. Sometimes they come visit with you. They come visit with you. Now you have transitioned into the home to which they come. You know, that's just how generations change. And then there's the time when maybe it's shifting to the next generation and you're coming to their home. But either way, you're, you're visiting folks. And see, God was not distant from his people. God blessed is the Lord God of Israel for he has visited his people. Our God is close. Our God is a promise keeper. Our God is faithful and our God is a dear friend. That's who he is. And our God is close enough to save. Our God promises to rescue us. Our God is faithful to his word and his people. And our God is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Scripture tells us that. This is the God of Israel, and this is the God of you and me. This is who we have. So as we look there in verse 68, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He is also, not only has he got faithfulness to his nation, he has redemption and salvation. We see that in verses 68 and 69. In verse 68, in the, latter, the second half there, the latter part of verse 68, it says he's redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, in the second line, Luke notes for he's visited and redeemed his people. God was being faithful to the people to whom he had made covenant. God is a covenant-keeping God, and he will stay true to his word. Every covenant that God had made throughout the Old Testament, he met that and kept that because he's a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. 
The idea, as we see this about he's redeemed his people and a horn of salvation, the idea of redemption runs through the Scripture with Exodus being the great Old Testament example of rescue from enemies and captivity. We see that. He has redeemed and saved his people. And redemption and salvation comes only through the one true God. That's the only way it comes. And the path through which our salvation is accomplished is the Son of God. He is the horn of salvation. Now this horn, as we look there in verse, in verse uh, 69... He's raised up a horn of salvation for us. The image of the horn points to the strength of the one to come. Since the metaphor looks back to the strong horns of, of ox that can defeat opponents, there we see that Deuteronomy 33, 17, and it represents an image of war, that horn of salvation. That's 1 Samuel 2.10 and also 2 Samuel 22.3. One commentator wrote, the horn is the focus of power of a cow moose or a rhinoceros jesus is to be that horn of salvation where all the power of god is focused the uniqueness of the rhinoceros we see that because that horn is really what designates that as a rhinoceros right we go to the zoo we see the rhinoceros we see that horn and we're like wow that is that's intimidating it's scary because that's the focus of its power jesus is the focus of the gospel power he is the horn of salvation. It is through him he pierces the darkness. He is the one who breaks down the power of sin. He is the horn of salvation. In John 14, 6, Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Christ is the pinnacle of power in salvation. And there is no other point so high in one's life than when the cresting of grace overcomes the curse of sin. There is, no, there is no point, there's no point so high in one's life than when the cresting of grace overcomes the curse of sin. It's a beautiful understanding as we look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Now there's proclaimers of salvation. We see that in verses 70 through 72, or the first part of 72. It says, as, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, That's, and to remember his holy covenant. Well, the prophets were the ones who proclaimed that. They proclaimed what God was going to do. The prophets were the Old Testament mouthpieces of God, heralding the messages of the Father to his people. God gave messages. Their purpose was to point people to the Father who would save them from their enemies and from the hands of all who hated them, just as the Scripture there says in verse 71. Now, sometimes the people would listen, but many times they did not, right? Many times they killed the prophets. You know, we, we are much like the people of Israel. Sometimes we accept the message. Sometimes we ignore the message. Sometimes we kill the messengers. We've got to be cautious of that. And I pray you don't come up with that idea. We've got to make sure that we're, as we're proclaiming the message, we're proclaiming the word of God in its fullness, in its truth, just as the prophets did in the Old Testament. You know, we're, we're stubborn, we're ignorant, we're rebellious in a way, we're, but, I want you to know this, but 
God performs his mercy as, as was promised to the forefathers. God is still about performing mercy today. That mercy is in the remembrance of his covenant. His covenant to David. And his salvation comes through the line of David. We see that in verse 69 and the latter part of verse 72. In verse 69, And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And in the latter part of verse 72, And to remember his holy covenant. That was the holy covenant to David. That's a looking back and a looking forward. We're going to look at Abraham in just a minute. The Abrahamic covenant. But Luke records Zacharias and how he pulls these thoughts from the covenant God made with David. Zacharias spoke of remembering the Holy Covenant, the promise God made with Israel that they would be the chosen people. You and I are members of the new covenant God made in Jesus Christ. We are part of that new covenant. In baptism, when we are baptized, we affirm for our children the, convenient, the, the, the covenant God has made with us through Jesus Christ. That's how we do that. Because in the Old Testament, the way they showed forth agreement with the covenant of the Old Testament, to say they were part of the Abrahamic covenant, was circumcision. But today, in the New Testament covenant, the way we show we are a part of the New Testament covenant is baptism. It's by baptism we symbolize we are associated with Jesus. I have confessed him as Lord. I am a follower of Jesus. So we follow him in baptism. So that's our, that's our part of the new covenant, of continuing that on. Now the appeal to David's house makes it clear that God is doing what the prophets promised long ago. Zacharias anticipates messianic redemption and thanks God for it. That's what he's saying right here. He's like, I'm so thankful that you have performed mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant that you gave to David, our father. Now listen, salvation, this salvation is an act of mercy. God's salvation, he doesn't have to offer it. But God in his great mercy is offering salvation for anyone and everyone who will believe. God saves us to prove his mercy. The entire Bible, from Abraham to the prophets down to King David, is about one thing, and that is salvation. The whole Bible is about salvation. The Bible has one story. God visiting or coming to get his people. That's what it's all about. He sends Abram out from his people. Abram, which eventually becomes Abraham because he becomes the father of the nations. And then he sends him out. And he sends out David. And he sends out and he, he calls a people unto himself. And what is he doing today through us in the new covenant, through Jesus Christ and his church? We're calling people to come out of the darkness into God's marvelous light through Jesus Christ, the horn of salvation. That is how people become a part of this newest covenant. The Bible has the one story, God visiting or coming to get his people. This was and is the plan. And just as much as the prophets were a part of the Old Testament plan, you and I are a part of the New Testament plan. So if you ever say, I don't really know what my purpose is, your purpose is to be a part of the new covenant plan, and that is to make Christ known. He is the horn of salvation. He is the pinnacle of redemptive power in our world today. We don't point people to the church to be saved. We don't point people to a ministry to be saved. We point people to Jesus 
the horn of salvation to be saved. The church supports and loves and disciplines and those so that they may stay within a good relationship of faith with Jesus. Ministries within the church are built to equip and to build people up so they go out to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Jesus is, in Jesus is all salvation. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. No name on a roll makes you saved. No name on a Sunday school list makes you saved. No name in our all call makes you saved. What makes you saved is your name written down in the Lamb's book of life where Jesus has written it down and you're saved by the grace of God, not by works, so that you cannot boast and I cannot boast. It is all in God's grace and mercy that salvation comes and it only comes through Jesus Christ. It's the only way it comes. Zacharias, he's talking about this Davidic, this Davidic uh, covenant. And then he talks about it, verses 73 through 75, he talks about the Abrahamic covenant. In 73 through 75, it says, The oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. Now, the mention of Abraham looks back to God's first promise to Israel there in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, where it reads like this. This is what is written there in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse them who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And he calls back to that. He calls back, Zacharias does, to God's promise, his oath, his covenant unto Abraham. This is what we call the Abrahamic covenant. And he says, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Because we are a child of, of God, we are of the family of Abraham, if you will, we don't have to serve God in fear. We serve him in faith. We serve him in faith. And let's, this, this nature, the nature of this salvation that was to come was assured by the oath to Abraham. He talks about the, the salvation in those first parts, the Davidic par portion of that, and then it's assured through the, through the oath to Abraham. But the goal of, of their physical deliverance there in the Old Testament was not simply their physical freedom. It wasn't just their physical freedom. The goal was worship. This is the New Testament version of what God told Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me. When we receive this freedom, just as Zacharias is saying, through this horn of salvation, we're going to have freedom from fear to serve you. We're going to have this freedom. The freedom is not so we can do our own thing. It's our freedom so we may worship God in spirit and in truth. It is so we may worship him. And we may serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Now listen, as we look at this, they're, they're still looking, just as I talked about with the Magnificat, they were looking very, as, as a revolutionary government overthrow kind of thought pattern. 
as I quoted about um, the, the Archbishop of Canterbury, he told his missionaries to India, don't say the Magnificat in public because it was so revolutionary. We talked about that last week just slightly. Here we see this as well. And we see the Israelites, though, they equated salvation with political deliverance. You know, as we read later on in the Gospels, so many times the disciples are like, is it now that you're going to bring the kingdom of heaven on earth? Are you going to overthrow Rome? Are you going to be the new king? We looked at this morning in our Sunday school lesson where Jesus said, destroy this temple, I'll raise it up three days. And, and the Jews and the Pharisees are like, what are you talking about? It took 46 years to build this temple. And then he goes in there and, and he starts kicking over tables and with a whip and he's throwing people out because they're taking advantage of folks. It's, it's a different kind of revolt. It's a different kind of revolution. That Jesus, when in his first advent, came. It wasn't a revolution of, of government in his first time he came. It was a revolution of heart. Before we began this series, we went through the series called Heart Attack. Because Christ attacks our heart. It's about our hearts before it becomes about our revolution, about a government, about any of these things. If we're not right in here, nothing's going to be right out there. So don't think for a minute that if because you know you've got issues in here, you're probably going to have issues outside of yourself. This this is what God's talking about. The enemy, when, when the Israelites equated salvation with political uh, deliverance, and John was about to give them a new understanding of salvation that the enemy is within, not without. John was to prepare the way for the one who was coming to deliver us all from the enemy within which is ourselves. Because Satan, listen, a lot of people want to give Satan way too much credit. Satan's not omnipresent. He can't live within you. The person who rules on the throne of your heart is either you or God. It's either you or God. Don't give Satan too much credit. He may tempt you. He may, he may try to get you to do things. But ultimately, you're going to be making that choice. Don't give Satan too much credit. God is the only one. God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is the only one who has the authority, the power, and the ability to reign in your heart. And the only way he does that is by you confessing him as Lord, believing in your heart that God raised his son from the dead, repenting of your sin, and believing in the gospel. Mark 115. That's how that comes. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because I'm already at the time limit, and I still got to talk about John's responsibility. All right, let's look at John's responsibility, verses 76 through 80, <laughs> very quickly. So Zacharias redirects the shower of prophecy now to his son. He's talked about the past. He's talked about how God's been so dependable. We can depend on him because look at what he did through the Davidic covenant. Look at what he did through the Abrahamic covenant. Look at what God has done. God is a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. Now, John, here's your responsibility. He's talking to his little eight-day-old son. Son, this is what you're going to do. I'm sure John was like, eh. you know. So here's the responsibility of a prophet. Prophets are given a message to herald. Prophets are expected to tell that message regardless as to what may come their way, whether harm or blessing. John will be no ordinary prophet. He will be the last prophet before the Messiah. The last prophet 
before the Messiah. That's a big thought. When I typed that out this week in my notes, I thought, I've never really, I mean, like, I know he was the forerunner. John was the forerunner of Jesus and, and all this. But think about that. The last prophet. There's no prophet on this earth today. John the baptizer was the last prophet. He is to prepare the way before the Lord. He is the last line clearing the brush, if you will, the brush and bramble, the thorns and thistles before the seed, before the seed is to be thrown by the Father so that all who hear him may believe and be saved. John is the last one. He's the last one clearing the path for, the, for Christ to come. What an amazing thought. You know, Scripture tells us through the curse there's thorns and thistles. And John was the last one to try to make way for the Lord. What a beautiful image and thought. He is responsible for preparing the way. How does John prepare the way? He does what he is set apart to do. And he does it within the boundaries set forth for his life by God before he was even conceived. To prepare the way for others, he had to live within the parameters set for himself. What were the two parameters? Well, as we look back, you can look back over just a couple of pages in, in your copy of God's Word, and you can see what the expectation of what he was supposed to do. Uh, back in verses, uh, verse 15 of chapter 1. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, okay? He shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him, capital H, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That was his responsibility for preparing the way. Now there was a responsibility to the gospel. Look at verses 77 through 79. The responsibility to the gospel. It says, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of God with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. <clears throat> so, this is the way I broke this down. The responsibility to the gospel. First, he must give them the understanding that sin separates from the Father. Sin separates from the Father to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. How do people get forgiveness of their sins? First, they've got to know they're a sinner. They've got to know they're a sinner. And Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He had to make sure everybody knew, You're a sinner if you have not known Christ. If you don't believe in the Messiah, you are a sinner. So he was to point them to an understanding that sin separates from the Father. He was to point them to the fact that remission of that sin comes through a knowledge of salvation. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Then Peter said, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remission of that sin comes through a knowledge of of salvation next he is to say salvation comes through repentance second corinthians 17 for god for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted but the sorrow of the world produces death 
Salvation comes through repentance. And then repentance is experienced through God's mercy. He says that there. Through the tender mercy of our God is how remission of sins comes. So remission is ex- repentance is experienced through God's mercy. And Mark 1.15 tells us, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time's fulfilled. He's been merciful up to this point. He's been gracious. The scriptures tell us later on, I want to say it's in Hebrews, but, but I might not be correct on that. But he says, God is not slack, as some people consider slackness, but it's his desire that all repent and come to faith in him. God is in his mercy showing, giving people time to repent and come to faith. God's mercy is realized. This is another thing that John the baptizer, part of his responsibility to the gospel, God's mercy is realized through Jesus' willingness to demonstrate his love. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's some tender mercy. And then how does that come? It comes through the day spring. It comes through the light of life. It comes through the one who will guide our feet into the way of peace. So he is to point them 100% to Jesus, not to himself, but to Jesus. Jesus is the day spring, the light giver, and our guide. As I quoted earlier, John 14, 6, he's the way, the truth, and the life. And no man shall come to the Father except through him. We can follow him. We can follow Christ as the way to go. We can trust him in words he has spoken and he speaks. And we can live in the life that he has led and has given. That's what we can do. Listen, Zacharias compared the Messiah to the day spring and to the light. But the light itself doesn't do the delivering. One commentator, Larson, in his communicator's commentary, wrote it this way. He said, we are given the picture of a band of people moving into the darkness, excuse me, moving into the wilderness. When the darkness falls upon them, they must halt. Suddenly, they discover the day spring is coming. It will be morning. When the light comes, they are free to proceed and to be saved. In the same way, Christ brings the light and shows us the way. But you and I must respond to the light and walk toward it. Zacharias' hymn was not some religious incantation. He was talking about light and life and deliverance. It's exactly what he was talking about. And Jesus is it. Jesus is the day spring. Jesus is the one that when it looks the bleakest, he peers over the horizon to bring hope. That is Jesus. And in him, he is the horn of salvation. There is no other. And John the baptizer was to be the one, the forerunner who points to Jesus. Jesus said, among those born of women, there is none greater than John. There's none greater than John. And no wonder. His parents rejoiced in his coming. His birth was celebrated by family and friends. He had great genes from his righteous mother and father. He had no identity crisis. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. But for those of us in the new covenant, there is a good word. 
there is a good word. Jesus gives us a new identity, a new set of spiritual genes, a new family, new mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers in the Spirit who sat at the time of your new birth. Wonder, what wonderful things will this child do and be? The good news is that you and I can be born again and with all joy and praise that attended the birth of John the baptizer. You and I can have that same joy. Be born into the family of God. Today, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray that you will repent of your sins and turn away from those sins and confess him as Lord. There's no greater decision that you will ever make in your life than to confess him as Lord. Zacharias gave a shower of praise to the Lord for his child. Let me ask you today, what are you going to give to the Lord today?